Like it's easier for a man to say fuck you than it is to say I'm hurt. We often have been taught as men to be very self-sufficient. And so there's this notion that we should have it all figured out. We should know exactly what we want. There's not a lot of room for a man to say, I actually have no freaking clue what I want in a woman. And so by starting to pay attention to who you are as a man and what starts to show up in a relationship, your insecurities, your sabotage, you know, you becoming needy and all that bullshit that starts to bubble up to the surface. There's merit in understanding your own darkness because your darkness is still you. Your insecurities, your inferiorities, what you don't want other people to know about you. So when you start to turn towards your fears, your insecurities, your doubts, there's a chance that you're able to not only understand those parts of you, but welcome them back into your inner kingdom. Because whether it's weight loss, whether it's personal development, anything that y'all want this year, it all mm -hmm. is connected to this. When you pay attention to that and start to work on those parts and accept it in and, and welcome those parts of you, what you'll start to notice is that you will gain an immense amount of clarity on the type of woman that you want to be with because you will learn who the fuck you are. So, so inspired by what you've been creating. And I was just telling you before we hit re the record button, like you have grown exponentially and it's a testament to your work. And, uh, you know, it's no surprise that Connor, the new book, men's work, right? The, the way that we can face our darkness and self-sabotage and find freedom. And I know those were probably terms that your editor liked because they rhymed and all that, but there's some, <laughs> there's some deep, deep meaning in there. And it's a reflection brother of where you've been, how you've been serving and how you show up. So just welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you having me back on and I've been looking forward to this conversation for sure. And it's been an honor and pleasure to watch your journey as well from, from across the country, from the East Coast and just watch you grow and what you've been doing with the show. And it's cool to see you in the studio. It looks beautiful. And, and I definitely, definitely want to get out there. Whether, whether or not we record at some point, yeah. I want to be out there. I want to walk in that studio and I want to celebrate with you. Yes. Well, this is a celebration to kick off the year. This is our first episode of 2023. And I think it was perfect because right now, Connor, people are focused on weight loss and becoming their best self. And it's like, no matter what you want outside, all the answers are deep within. And that sounds mm -hmm. like a very spiritual statement, which it is like any kind of work for, for men or women is very spiritual. And, and a lot of what I've gone through last year in 2022, it was about allowing parts of myself to die that had been gnawing at me for quite some time. And I'm curious for you, man, five years in the making for this book with your son code being born in the middle of it and all the things that you've had to carry, you know, leading men across the world, what expansion did you have to face within Connor, within self, to let maybe one or two big things die in order for this book to truly be birthed? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I put this proposal together years ago and it sort of evolved over time. And then when... Uh, when I was really ready last, I think it was last year, the year before, I ended up getting connected with an agent, phenomenal agent, phenomenal agency. And I really was sort of set on 
uh, publishing this book through a, a mainstream publisher. And that came, and this will tell you something about me, that came on the other side of me having a few conversations with big publishing houses, like some of the biggest in the world, and them literally telling me, we love the concept, we love you and your work and your platform, but men don't buy books. And men don't buy <laughs> personal development and self-help books. And I was like, well, maybe you're not publishing anything that they give a shit about. You know, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought of the fact that it's like, it's not that men don't buy books. It's like you're not producing content that they actually care about that's relevant to them. Yeah. And so it, it kind of lit this fuel under my ass to prove the, the publishing industry wrong, you know, and to put a piece of work out there that's, that was literally from men, for men, and about men. And yes, women will learn from it and they can learn a lot about men from it, but it's really a book for men and about men. And so, uh, anyway, and so I ended up having my son and the day that we got back from the hospital. So my son is born March 13th. We're in the hospital for four days because there was some minor complications in the very beginning and we wanted to make sure that he was all good. We get back from the hospital and I have two back-to-back -back interviews with major publishing houses. And a week and a half, two weeks later, you know, get offers and uh, decide what to do and decide who to go with. I ended up going with Sounds True, who's just a great publishing house. And I was off, you know, off to the races of writing this book. And so it's it's definitely been an interesting journey to to juggle. And then after that, my wife signed with the same agency uh, that I was with, and then she got a book deal, and then she started writing her book. And so it was like, you know, we we recorded this podcast called Two Books and a Baby, where we just talked about what it was like to be a couple who were both running businesses, having a new child, writing books, building a house, like just trying yeah. to smash all of life into one very finite period of time, which I do not recommend for everybody listening. I like we definitely, we definitely took on too much for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh we we bit off more than we can chew, but we're ambitious people. So I think on that note, what I had to sort of let die was two things. The first thing was this old story that younger me had about not being good enough and not specifically not being smart enough. You know, I grew up in an environment where I was constantly told, you're a stupid piece of shit. You know, you'll never amount to anything. I literally heard those things constantly. And so I held that story as a young boy and as a young man that there there was something fundamentally wrong with me and flawed with me. And as I was telling you before the show, like I fail grade 12 English. I fail grade 12 biology, mostly because I was off with my girlfriend at the time and prioritizing partying and women. But also I just didn't try. I didn't uh, apply myself because I had bought into this story that I had held that I was not smart enough. Mm. And so part of that really got confronted when I started writing the book and I had started writing this book years and years and years ago. I had the concept, you know, about five years ago, but then when I actually got the contract <clears throat> and signed the book deal and started writing the book, all of a sudden, all of those older insecurities came back up. You know, do I really know what I'm talking about? Are people really going to give a shit about this? You know, am I going to be able to convey my teachings and the messages and the lessons that I've learned along the way? in a way that that is going to really land for people and help them create transformation in their life. And so that old narrative just like came back strong, man. And I remember one night having a conversation with my wife where I was like, I'm I'm struggling. You know, I was like a month and a half in, two months into writing this book. Um, I didn't have a collaborator. So I didn't have somebody that was there 
you know, having me speak to them and then them writing the words, I was literally writing the book. And I was like, I'm, I'm struggling and all these insecurities and all these fears are coming back up. And this feels like the most terrifying thing that I could do. And I can feel like younger me just being like, dude, if you put this book out here, people are going to hate it. And it was funny because in the moment, you know, she was a new mom and she just didn't have capacity for it. And she's like, you'll be fine. Like you need just to yeah. get over this. She's dealing know? with so much at that point. I went through that too, where it's like, you're going to have to handle your own shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's just got so much going on. She's like, she's like, you're going to be fine. So she didn't have a lot of space, which was funny because when she started writing her book, she had the exact same insecurity come up. But so I had to, I had to really let that go. I had to face and confront the fact that this old story was present and to create the possibility of something new. And so as I wrote, I would send chapters to people in my life that I deeply respected. And I would say, tear this up, you know, give me genuine feedback, love it, hate it, somewhere in between, tell me what you like. And I ended up hiring um, the guy who helped me put my book proposal together, like the structure of it. And he had been an editor at GQ and Men's Health Magazine for like two decades. And I would, I sent him like, I think the first six to eight chapters. And I said, can you just tell me if this makes sense and is engaging and lands? And so I did all these things to kind of get external feedback where old me, because of the story that I'm not good enough, would have avoided any feedback. Mm. You know, he would have avoided any feedback and any type of correction because he wouldn't have wanted to feel the shame. So I had to put myself in these positions of telling, you know, having people tell me like, this part's great. This part's phenomenal. Um, this part doesn't really make too sense. And it's like too intellectual and too heady, you know? And so I could see this part of me that was also overcompensating. So that was the big piece as I went through yeah. this book uh, of letting that die. I would say that's, that's the primary thing. There's probably many more. There, there's probably many more layers to that too. I'm visualizing what it must have felt like because... Anytime, Connor, I've ever done anything new where I've really put myself out there, like changing the show name last year and, you know, having my son and, and doing my growth here in Austin, I always have that come up too, every single time. And I think for me, it really stems around a father wound. You talk about this in the book. One of my most potent parts as I was reading the book was chapter three. And everybody's mm. going to feel this because whether w this is a specific book for men, but I think the women here with us can really feel this too. And this was the shadow of the father. So I'm just going to read this quick clip right here because it's my favorite. Mm. What was silent in the father speaks in the son. And often I found in the son, the unveiled secret of the father. And that was Nietzsche. You said the shadow of your father is neither good nor bad, only inescapable. I mean, that is an entire podcast right there, you know, just mm. what I shared, but how did that play out for you? Because I know it connects to my soul in a very expansive way, but in that expansion was a lot of pain, a lot of uncomfortableness. Mm. So why did you write that specific chapter? What did that quote mean to you? How did that play out in your life up to this point? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, I, I wrote yeah, you know, I shared that quote and I wrote that sentence that it's, you know, our father's shadow is neither good nor bad because yeah. we often get caught demonizing our father and we do get stuck in his shadow, right? I think my father should have been this. He should have been nicer. He should have been kinder. You know, he should have stood up to my mom more. And we, we become a sort of judge of our parent 
you know, we become a judge of our our father, and we sit in this righteous seat when we're hurt as as young boys, as men, and we say, this is how my dad should have parented me. As if we know, you know, as if we have any context for his life and what he was going through and any of those other things. And so partly it's to remove the the predilection towards pedestaling our fathers or uh or or trying to take them down a peg yeah. by judging them and their actions and actually seeing the man that they were and that allows us to step out behind their shadow behind the the shadow of who they were and how great they were and how exceptional they were and how we'll never feel like we can you know live up to their expectations or live up to the man that they were or step out of the shadow of they were a piece of shit and they treated me like shit and I don't know how to forgive them. And so for me, you know, my my parents were divorced when I was 3. My father left, remarried another woman, um and he started his own family. And so as I talk about in the book, you know, I really experienced this this uh, deep pain as a child where I wanted him to be around, but I couldn't see him and I couldn't understand it. And so it created this kind of hollowness, like buried within my chest that I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to express when I was a boy, but I just felt this like really deep pain because of the death of my parents' marriage. And then my mom remarried and she married this man, my, my stepfather, and he and I did not get along. We did not have a good relationship. I did not want him around. I didn't like him. And I I fucking let him know that. And he and I... Was it like a physical a fair, thing? Was it like physical or verbal or both? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of like verbal and emotional challenging and abuse sometimes. And, you know, and then sometimes it was physical as well. And so... So he and I would get into it and and the the challenging part for me was that he was my primary parent. He was the coach of my hockey team. He was the one spending the most time with me. And so here I was, this, this boy who had lost his father, who had lost the one person he really wanted to be around the most because what boy doesn't just love their father and want time with them, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I lost this this sort of godlike figure in my life and had been replaced with this person who who was doing his best admittedly but but was abusive sometimes you know and so that created this really sort of tumultuousness within me where i didn't know how to engage with either of them and i didn't know how to engage with men that made me not trust men or masculinity and so what ended up happening is years later i i started to try and chase my father so i got out of high school i didn't know what i was going to be doing my stepdad had gotten me a job working construction. I'm in Northern Alberta working in gravel pits at like minus 40, minus 30, you know, in the winter. I fucking hated it. I disliked my life. And so I started to try and pursue my dad and literally started to live in his shadow. And so he he worked for the government, but he sang uh, part-time in like the, uh, the local opera chorus, you know? And so to try and get close to him, I started to take music lessons. And I started to try and spend more time with him. Mm. And it was like the more I pursued building this relationship with him, the more vague and nebulous he seemed to be to me. And the more frustrated I was, the more angry I was because he had this whole family and it seemed like he was very dedicated to them. And so I, I literally had to let that play its course until my life sort of broke down you know, for a number of different reasons that we can sort of talk about if that's, that's valuable. And step outside of the shadow of both of these men that had raised me, one that I was chasing and one that I just vehemently did not want to be around. 
And so once I did that, once I started to step outside of that shadow and actually see them for who they were, there was a possibility for me to step into the man that I I was capable of becoming outside of their purview, outside of who they were and who they wanted me to be and who I was trying to be to piss them off or appease them or any of that bullshit, but to actually in a sovereign way, step outside of their confines and into the sort of formation of my own identity unencumbered by them or their expectations or anything. This podcast is brought to you by my friends and partners over at HVMN, otherwise known as Health Via Modern Nutrition. They make an energy and cognition drink called Ketone IQ. I've been using it for many months now, not only for my energy, here's the thing, for my energy without caffeine. (laughs) That's right, no caffeine, no sugar, just clean on-demand energy for superior physical and cognitive performance. Now, if you don't know, ketones are nature's super fuel proven to support energy, focus, endurance, and more. Developed alongside the U.S. military and top universities, HVMN's Ketone IQ delivers all those benefits in one shot, one little drink. One of the biggest benefits of ketones is taming my hunger hormone, ghrelin, the hormone that my stomach tells my brain, hey, I'm hungry. It turns that down so I feel fuller for much longer. You might have heard of ketones before, but there's a big difference. There's ketones from the inside, known as endogenous, and there's ketones from the outside, known as exogenous. But here's the kicker. They both work the same exact way, except for the one of them, you have to starve yourself. And for the one that I use, the ketone IQ, you can just drink it and get all the brain energy and metabolic advantages of fasting, but without the hunger. And that's amazing. So this is where science is actually on our side. I've been using Ketone IQ for over six months since the founder, Michael Brandt, came on the show. And I'll tell you, it's better than a second or third cup of coffee in the afternoon because you don't get the jitters. You don't get the crash, just the energy and no crazy side effects. If you've been looking for a coffee alternative to make your brain and your body and your energy and metabolism improve, look no further than Ketone IQ. Just head over to joshtrent.com forward slash HVMN. That's joshtrent.com forward slash HVMN. Enter code Josh. You get 20% off. You can take these little Ketone IQ shots in these portable little containers, or you can buy the bigger bottles and get them on a recurring delivery at a recurring discount. JoshTrend.com forward slash HVMN. Use the code Josh for 20% off your order. Wow, so there's two big ones. There's two big ones right there. You said sovereignty and actually truly stepping out of the shadow. So when you yeah. say sovereignty and stepping out of the shadow, those are easy words for the intellect to understand, but to actually have those embodied that is sometimes for a lot of people, a lifetime of work. So mm-hmm. let's, let's like e-break that really quickly. Sovereignty and stepping out of the shadow involves looking at your own shadow, an emotional inventory process, um, a way to actually befriend. I know it sounds counterintuitive to befriend your shadow and learn from it as a protector, as a teacher, as a guide. Mm-hmm. Go into that a little bit yourself and then also share, Connor, how that's in the book, a big aspect of this book and probably when people search for you online, there's a lot of connection between Connor Beaton and the shadow. So mm-hmm. please talk about that. Bring that all together for us because whether it's weight loss, whether it's personal development, anything that y'all want this year, it all comes to this. It all mm-hmm. is connected to this. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to approach this by just saying like there's merit in understanding your own darkness because your darkness is still you right? Your darkness is still a part of who you are. Your insecurities, your inferiorities, what you worry about people knowing about you, what you don't want other people to know about you. There's merit in the reclamation of that psychological, emotional, spiritual, physical material. 
right? So when you start to turn towards your fears, your insecurities, your doubts, there's a chance that you're able to not only understand those parts of you, but welcome them back into your inner kingdom. And generally speaking, the the process of doing that, the process of, as a man, admitting, I feel hurt or I feel insecure, and then beginning to work with that insecurity or that anxiety or that fear is the very act of strengthening that sends the signal to your psychology and your emotional body and your physical body like, oh, I can not only do hard things, but I can invite in the unsavory elements of who I have thought I am and and really invite in the parts of myself that up until this point, I have thought, if I let other people know about these things, they're going to reject me. They're going to break up with me and leave me and not love me and not give me the kind of sex that I want and all that other kind of bullshit that runs through our head. Yeah. Right. And so, and in doing so, you become more sovereign because here's the, here's the real kicker. There's a great saying by um, a psychologist and a therapist, American therapist named Francis Weller, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's phenomenal. And he says, your pain has its own intelligence. Your pain has its own intelligence. So your shadow has its own intelligence. And, and in Jung's framework, the man who invent, invented the concept of the shadow, the shadow is the sort of psychological energy that's working against you to shut off the pathways towards your goals, your aims, the change that you want, the love that you want, the connection you want, et cetera. So we have to be able to start to understand and invite in that intelligence to work with us, to build a relationship with it. So it's not working against us, but with us. And when we can start to do that, we start to expand consciously, but we start to expand into a more robust version of ourselves. And we do the hard thing that up until that point, we've been rejecting and avoiding. And that creates sovereignty internally because we do one thing that so many people in our modern culture are afraid to do. We stop making other people responsible for how we feel. We stop doing that. That's what sovereignty is about, is to have a kind of reclamation of this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through and thinking, and this is what I'm ashamed of, and this is what I don't want to talk about. And when we start to reclaim those internal truths and stop you know, putting those on other people and making our spouse responsible for them, then we create a deeper level of sovereignty within our own sense of being. Other people can trust us more. And not only not only that, but maybe more importantly, we can trust us more. So I don't know if it'd be helpful for, to me to give like a, a very specific example, but- Well, I, I have something things, better. I have something better. Yes. I want to ask sure. you how this played out with Vienna because I know with Carrie Michelle and probably with all the male friends that I have that do any kind of work, our spouse or our partner is the greatest mirror for the sovereignty you're talking about. And I'm curious how this has played out with you and her, especially- with the birth of code, because when I when when you were talking, Connor, I was almost visualizing if sovereignty was a rope, it's connected to this really solid foundation of knowing who you are, know thyself, and peace. Right? Mm. Sovereignty is connected to peace. Otherwise, there'd be no anchor for it to attach to. So our partners, in a way, it's such a paradox, man. They they challenge our peace, but that's mm -hmm. good because they test the foundation of our sovereignty, which is it's connected to. So, mm -hmm. so maybe if you're open to it, I know I'm putting you on the spot. No, no, you're good. <laughs> but you're how good. did this, how did this play out? How does this play out with Vienna maybe now or in the past, this concept? 
Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a pretty clear example. So and and maybe just one thing before I give you the example, which is um in the book I talk about how when I talk about our relationship to women, our relationship as men to women, I talk about how women reveal who you are as a man. So if you want to be in right relationship with a woman, it's not about trying to figure her out or win with her or get it right with her or get her validation or, you know, live the happy life, happy wife bullshit. That that never works. What does work is beginning to see who do I become as a man in this relationship, whether it's with my wife or with a new girlfriend or with a woman I'm dating, right? Who do I become and what gets revealed about me as a man in relationship? Because you're the journey, brother. You're the journey. Your psyche, your morals, your ethics, your your internal sense of code and direction, your purpose, that's the journey. And when we offload that journey onto a woman and project that onto her, we disempower ourselves and we disenfranchise ourselves as men. And that feels wildly unsafe for the women that we're with. Because what we've just told them is, not only do I think I, I'm responsible for your happiness, but now I need to find my purpose through you. I need to find my function through you as a man. So by doing some of this work, we start to reclaim who we actually are and not only become so, sort of more quote unquote safe for women, but we actually become fundamentally more attractive to women because yeah. when we do that, they can see like, oh, here's a man on his path. Here's a man that has some form of calling and a purpose, and that's deeply attractive to the feminine and to women. So the specific example I'll give is when my wife and I first started dating, we have very different upbringings. I'm like the oldest of five. Um, she is an only child. And so she grew up in this environment where things were high conflict, you know, lots and lots of it. Cops are called sometimes, lots of uh, sort of getting into arguments and disagreements and people needing to be right and et cetera. And I grew up where in one household, there was no conflict, just didn't exist, didn't happen. And in the other household, conflict was violent or abusive. And so I had a, a pretty strong um, predisposition to avoid conflict. <laughs> and it I was sort of like, like the classic, classic nice guy, right? So when yeah. we started dating, some of those patterns started to reemerge, you know, because in, in past relationships, I had been the guy where, you know, I would get into a relationship and when things started to go south, I would check out in some fashion by finding another woman for the side. You know, I was like a chronic serial cheater just constantly, you know. And so in this relationship and and in the ones before it, I've been really trying to not do that, you know, to step in, lean in fully, ask for what I wanted, ask for what I needed. So when we first started dating, everything, you know, in the honeymoon phase was great. And then at some point, things started to shift, you know, when when the veil falls, the honeymoon phase goes away. And we started to have these like little arguments and little conflicts that were starting to show up. And she was happy to engage with them. You know, she's no problem. She's sort of, you know, sort of in my face sometimes. And that was really jarring for me because no part of me wanted to deal with that. And every part of me felt like I was back in that conflict with like my stepdad where I needed to defend myself and fight and be louder than the other person and dominate the interaction. And so I started to notice this part of me coming into the relationship that had never been online before you know, that wanted to dominate conversations and be right at all costs and get loud if I needed to and, you know, take up more space and sort of hostile. And 
after a couple of weeks of that, after maybe like a month or two of getting into some of these arguments, I was like, what in the fuck is going on? Like, what is happening? <laughs> who is this monster like, inside of me? Yeah. Like, who is yeah. this monster? And why can I not like regulate myself and stay grounded in these conversations? You know, because in any other interaction at work, you know, in the work that I was doing with men, like I can hold for some pretty deep stuff. You know, I can hold for, I mean, the work that I do is helping men in in a lot of ways move through trauma, you know, and that's, that's a, a big part of the work that I do. And that's, that's, you have to be present in a very specific way for that. And so I was like, well, how come I can, I can be deeply present in those moments and grounded. And that's, that doesn't phase me. But when my girlfriend at the time, my now wife is criticizing me for something, it's completely throwing me off and messing yeah. my shit up, you know, and causing me to become so reactive. And so I went back to the sort of core principles of the shadow, which is when you get reactive, it is a neon sign pointing towards your shadow. And I started to see how there was this hurt younger part of me that thought that he needed to fight and defend himself and dominate the other person in order to provide safety, in order to prove that he could belong, in order to prove that you know, he's worthy of being in that relationship. And so as I started to tend to that part of me, I could set much clearer boundaries about what was okay and what wasn't okay for me when it came to conflict, you know, with with my now wife and say like this isn't workable and you know, I don't think that we should talk to each other like that and and set some structure around how conflict looked. And that was one of the most powerful things that I, I think I did in our dynamic, because as I talked about in the book, you, you want to find a partner that you can do conflict with. It's not that you don't want to find a woman. It's not that you want to find a woman that conflict never happens. That's not real. You know, mm -hmm. that's some like Disney bullshit that we've been sold in our modern culture that you should yeah. find this perfect relationship that's one-itis. And it, it doesn't exist, but it, it actually exists only to make people feel inferior and to monetize them from relationship courses to movies to jewelry and all this stuff like that. I feel like what you're talking about, there's an entire industry and world with segments that really feasts upon the insecurity that is created by finding the relationship that just feels good, brother. It just feels good, sister. Those don't actually exist. Yeah. And, and what does exist is the reality of the human experience, which is sometimes <laughs> it's going to be messy and sometimes yeah. it's going to be conflict. And so what I talked about in the book is like, find a woman that you want to do conflict with, find a woman that you can trust enough to go through those hard conversations and hard times with, because you're probably going to do it anyways. You know, you're going to lose parents, you're going to lose family members, shit's going to go wrong in your business or your career. And so, you know, if you can have somebody that's along for the ride with you that you respect enough to move through some of that conflict with, you're much more likely to show up in a respectful way, to want to prioritize figuring out what's happening within you as a man. And then subsequently, become somebody who's willing to move through that that conflict yourself. And that's the really important part because it's easy for us to point the finger at the other person and say, this this is your doing, this is your fault. Yeah. You know, as I as as I write yeah. in the book, like it's easier for a man to say fuck you than it is to say I'm hurt. And so practicing that in the relationship of like, actually I'm just 
I feel hurt right now, or I feel embarrassed, or I feel ashamed that I forgot to do that. You know, yeah, um, that's a much harder thing to do, but that's the thing that's going to not only develop your competence within a relationship and and build trust, but it's going to strengthen your own sense of inner confidence because you'll be sending a signal to yourself of like, oh, I can do the hard thing in my relationship and not buckle and not back away and not shut down and and not point the finger and become blaming or defensive. There's a couple really good things there. The first one is that Vienna was the type of human, the type of person that wanted to do that work, right? I believe she's an MFT, correct? Yeah, she's a marriage, okay. marriage therapist, yeah. So with her background, that was probably some of the tether, some of the energy of y'all getting together is that you know your psyche felt maybe in an unconscious way, oh, this person's really good to do the work with. That was that part of the connection? That was that was part of it. I think the other part of it was that I just respected who she was as a person, how she operated, um, how she, you know, treated herself, her core tenets, her values. I just I deeply respected her as as a human being, as a woman specifically. She had values that I really appreciated. She had lived a life that I appreciated. And so I, I think that's a very important thing. I think we often underestimate how important respect is within the context of relationship you know like i i say this all the time of like women want to be with men that they respect mm-hmm. and and when women start to lose and of course i'm talking within a heterosexual context but i think sure. that's just a human being thing you know like we want to be with people that we respect and so yeah i, I think when i first met her i was like oh here's somebody that i just deeply respect and admire and appreciate and and I can you know doesn't mean that she doesn't have flaws doesn't mean that she doesn't have aspects of her that need work, um, but it was a little easier for me to to love her through those hard parts when I could stay connected to I, I respect this person. It's a really big piece of the conversation because your ability to select essentially the right partner. So let's speak to the men, right? And we're being heteronormal. For, for a man to choose a woman, for a woman to choose a man and have it be challenging, but also healthy at the same time, there in a way, Connor has to be this Goldilocks zone of adaptability, of consciousness, of the acumen to do the, the proper work. So is there a formula or a recipe? And I don't know actually if this is something that even guided you to write the book as well. Like how, did, how as a man do we choose the right partner? What do we look for? What characteristics do we cultivate and stoke inside of ourselves and also look for, be on the lookout for in our women. Is there a unique recipe for that? I mean, I, I think what I talk about in the book again is, is paying attention to what a woman reveals about who you are as a man. Because mm-hmm. I think we often underestimate, you know, we've been, we often been taught as men to be very self-sufficient, kind of lone rangers, like they're still very pervasive within our culture. And so there's this notion that we should have it all figured out. We should know exactly what we want. There's not a lot of room for a man to say, I actually have no freaking clue what I want in a woman or a partner. I just have no clue. And so by starting to pay attention to who you are as a man and what starts to show up in a relationship, your insecurities, your sabotage, you know, you becoming needy and all that bullshit that starts to bubble up to the surface. When you pay attention to that and you start to and start to work on those parts and accept it in and, and welcome those parts of you, what you'll start to notice is that you will gain an immense amount of clarity on the type of woman that you want to be with because you will learn who the fuck you are. 
And that is that that's the most important thing that I can say. If you don't know who you are as a man, how in the hell should you know who you want to be with? You you can't. So that that's part one. Part two is more so about women, which is a, a few things. One, as I was saying before, find a woman that you can do conflict with. It's one of the most important things because you're going to experience it. The relationship's going to have conflict and you need to have a partner that you can go through hard times with. It's the number one most important thing. So, uh, you know, and, and I say that because in attachment theory, one of the things that we can see in attachment theory is in order to have a secure attachment, two people need to go through a hard time and come out the other side okay. It's one of the most fundamental, just sort of basic things that we as human beings need. So we need to go through a hard time, whether that's, you know, some minor betrayal or a rip or tear within the relationship where somebody has lied about something and or there's been mistrust or whatever it is, and come out the other side of that okay, that the two of us can work through that. So I'd say that that's one of the most important things that you can look for in a partner. And then and then secondly, and this is a little, maybe a little bit more hard to describe, but is that person someone who wishes isn't the right word, but sometimes challenges you to be the version of yourself that you know you're capable of? You know, the man that you are trying to step into being, the man with the with the deeper sense of purpose and direction, the father in you, the business owner, the career, whatever that looks like. But can is she somebody who's challenging you to step into that version of you? And I want to make a very clear distinction because a lot of men, I've said this before, and a lot of men are like, well, I don't want a woman to tell me how to be. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying find a woman who's trying to change you into into who she thinks she wants you to be. That's very different. And we can feel the difference if we're tuned into our body. A woman who's trying to challenge us to change us into who she wants us to be is likely not what we want to be around long-term, right? And and nor should they. Like Women don't want to be around men who are trying to control them and manipulate them into being who they want them to be. That's not how we feel loved as human beings. But if you can find somebody who who's confronting you, challenging you, celebrating you, praising you for stepping more fully into the man that you've said, this is who I want to be as a man, a father, a husband, a business owner, a leader, a contributor, a friend, a son. And she can celebrate you along the way when you step into that. And she can challenge you a little bit when you step out of that. That is such a beautiful thing to have in a relationship. And I want to make it clear that you should definitely have good men in your life who are challenging you. And that's that's incredibly important. But you want to have this, this kind of um, relationship with the person that you're dating. Because otherwise, a lot of people get in a relationship with people who are trying to get them to change to be more like they want them to be mm-hmm. and not who mm-hmm. that individual has said that, that I want to be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times too... And I felt this before even having children with Carrie Michelle is like, there's, there's also a recipe that we can add in here. That's an existential knowing. So what you're saying is so powerful. And I know in the book, there's specific segments about regulation, like regulating ourselves as men is so important because without the proper regulation, one might kick out a a partner who has the great qualities, who does push the man towards growth. And maybe that man's navigational system around, is this person pushing me because they want to control me? Or is this person pushing me because they want my best? 
I'm curious, let's drill just a little bit deeper, man. You said it's harder for men or it's, you said it's easier for men to say, fuck you versus I'm hurt. Why is that? So there's, there's two things that I, that I point to in the book. The first one is what I call the myth of separation. And the myth of separation is that you as a man are stronger by separating from the things that might make you look weak. So saying that you feel hurt or that you're embarrassed by something or you feel ashamed by something might make you look weak, or at least that's how we perceive it. And so we try and distance ourselves from that thing. But the distancing from our, from ourselves, the distancing from that thing, from that shame, that embarrassment is the thing that makes us look weak. So it's sort of this paradoxical nature where the myth of separation tells men that if you just disconnect and hide from the shit that, that you think is going to make you look weak, you'll be a strong man. Bullshit. Won't do it, right? Mm-hmm. Because you internally will know you're living a lie. It's why something like 70% of cor- corporate executives, uh, when they're asked, do you feel like an imposter at work? Say yes, right? It's a huge astronomical number because so many of us are living in this way as to separate from the things that we feel make us weak. The second thing is we've sort of been bought into this notion in masculine culture that there is strength in suppression. That if you as a man feel something that's unsavory, or you've done something that is needy or insecure, or whatever the case may be, and you don't want other people to know about it, then suppressing is the answer. And there's this sort of equation that exists within masculine culture, within the sort of traditional masculine culture that says, the more that you can suppress things that you don't like, your fears, your insecurities, your worries, your doubts, etc., the stronger you'll be as a man. And that's how we've operated as a collective within our Western masculine culture. But if you look at things like Stoicism or Buddhism or uh, any really of any of the philosophies, spiritually or non-spiritually, what you'll see is that the act of admission, the act of admission that something is existing within you is the pathway towards strength. It is the pathway towards strength. And so we've bought into this sort of false notion. Many men buy, and I bought into it for a long time. You know, I was like, I'm not going to tell people about my my porn addiction, the challenge I'm having with porn, or the infidelities, or the drug use, or the alcohol abuse. I'm not going to tell anybody about this. I'm not going to tell them about how I feel depressed and how I'm struggling. I'm going to withhold that from the men in my life. And so. I got caught in this notion in my past that if I just suppressed those things hard enough and long enough that I would be okay and I'd be stronger and more capable and more successful because of it. But that was the exact thing that ensured my demise later on in life. Mm-hmm. It was the exact mm-hmm. thing that created my rock bottom later on in life. And so we need to, as men, be able to turn towards the things that we are normally hiding and separating from and suppressing because those are the things that are disempowering us, disenfranchising us, and ultimately causing us to be impotent in some way, right? Physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically within our career. It really is is, is Uh, castrating us in some capacity. Also, also impotent sexually. I mean, my journey with porn was over 20 years. So, and I've talked about this multiple times on this podcast and many others, like what really for me, and I, I want to know what helped you heal that, because you talk about porn in the book. There's a specific chapter. This is something that if I had to throw a number on it, and who knows how we even figure out numbers, but if I had to guess intuitively, 
I would assume that it's probably upwards of 70% of men that have had either hard addictions with it or a challenge with it without it becoming a massive addiction. So for me, what made the difference was actually being in a relationship where I had to be honest. I chose to be honest with her about the fact that I was struggling. And it was from that point, Connor, and actually a, a shared place we've been to around plant medicine where I got smacked so hard there was nowhere for my shadow to hide. It was fully illuminated. And it was like flicking on the light in a closet and seeing all the shit that I just didn't want to see. And that, that was really the culmination point of if I want intimacy with her, if I want uh, my son, which now we have manifested, we've created in divine union and our second baby on the way for April. So like, there's obviously a result to the work that you and I are talking about. But for you, how did that unfold? What was your kind of flicking the moment uh, with the lights on in the closet around porn. Yeah. Well, mine was a battle for a long time and it, it really was a battle. I mean, and I mean that, you know, I, I really struggled to give it up. And what I started to realize and what I talked about in the, in the book, and I, I sort of actually like lay out the process that I, that I went through in order to sort of defrag myself and uh and get sober from pornography and and this isn't to sort of demonize porn or make any sort of social commentary on it i think when people talk about pornography they get lost in the weeds of whether it's good or bad i'm not actually yeah. interested in that conversation yes um, what's more interesting is if you don't want to watch porn and you can't stop what do you do because that's where a lot of men find themselves and so yeah. for me what i started to realize was that i was always feeling something that I didn't want to feel right before watching porn. That's Anxious, it. That's alone, it. right? Angry, disgruntled, disconnected, etc. And so I was always feeling some form of an internal charge in my body, in my mind, in my heart, in my soul that I didn't want to be with. And and so porn was the way for me to regulate my nervous system. It was the way for me to rid myself of anxiety. It was a way for me to stop feeling lonely. It was a way for me to celebrate. It was the, I mean, it just, it, it sort of, it replaced a lot of different things in my life, but the main function was to sort of help me feel better, you know, or pretend like I was feeling better, yeah. you know, and get that dopamine dump. But mm -hmm. I had to really start to get present to what am I feeling before, what am I experiencing in my body before I actually want to watch porn or I do watch porn. And that was really jarring because I I would just started a very basic practice of like, okay, the moment that I feel like I want to watch porn, I'm going to set a timer for 10 minutes. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to force myself to breathe and feel. I'm just going to do nothing else for 10 minutes. And what I started to notice in that moment was that I fucking hated that. <laughs> I really didn't like it. You know, my body, yeah. my body was just like just Stop being an idiot and go yeah. jerk off and watch porn. And like, you know, you're going to do it anyways after. And so I yeah. watch my mind and my body just like jumping through fiery hoops of, of bullshit to try and get me to go watch pornography. And so it had become the external mm. mechanism that I used to regulate my system because no one had shown me how to do that as a man, right? No one had shown me how to regulate my body and my nervous system and my mind. And so when it was dysregulated, and I was feeling something that I didn't want to feel, that's what I would go and use. And for some men, it's weed. For other men, it's alcohol. For other men, it's um, you know prostitution or I mean, gambling. There's a number of different ways that we can do that. Yeah. But I think the easiest thing for men is pornography because there's no risk involved, 
right? Yes. For the most part, there's no risk. It's different than food. Food, you wear it eventually. Um, Shopping, you have to come to terms with the bank account eventually. Porn, you can hide that shit for decades, right? I mean, you can just stay in the, the shadow perpetually. So again, I'll circle back, dude. What was the moment or maybe the culmination of moments that led you to the closet where you flicked on the light and you're like, there's Connor. You know, I don't know if there was a kind of like, come, you know, come to God reconciliation, like big aha moment for me because there was, there was so many tried and failed attempts along the way, Yeah, you know? And I think initially one of the first moments was <clears throat> probably in my mid twenties when the woman that I was dating, you know, like not caught me in the act of watching porn, but found out that I'd been watching pornography. And we had a conversation about it. This podcast is brought to you by my friends at Paleo Valley. They make the most delicious and healthy superfood bar you've ever tasted. Guaranteed 10 organic nutrient dense superfoods plus grass fed bone broth protein for optimal health and boundless energy. They're all of life's adventures. Take your pick from the red velvet, lemon meringue, dark chocolate chip, or apple cinnamon. I absolutely love these bars and so does my family. We always have them stocked for about four big reasons. One, they're nutrient dense. Most snack food bars, especially the bars, contain little to no nutrients. Paleo Valley changed that. All the organic ingredients, all the 10 powerful superfoods in every single bite. Also 100% grass-fed bone broth protein. Love that, not only for cellular health, but also amino acids that protect against cardiovascular incidents. Number three, no gluten, grain, soy, or added sugar. A lot of bars contain cheap fillers like soy, corn, oats, legumes, gluten, not good stuff. And lastly, they damn taste good. <laughs> they taste great. Excuse my French. Well, not really. They taste damn good. Let's be honest. Healthy products don't have to suck. You can get these tasty mouth-watering bars. You can stock them in your pantry. You can put them in your gym bag, in your car. I pretty much always have them for Nova, my son. He's almost two years old and I put him in his go bag. He always, he actually loves the red velvet. That's his favorite. It's actually daddy's too. Pick up a bunch of these at joshtrend.com forward slash paleo valley. Use the code josh at checkout. You get 15% off the red velvet, the lemon meringue, dark chocolate chip, apple cinnamon, your entire shopping cart. joshtrend.com forward slash paleo valley. Code josh saves you 15%. And she wasn't shaming or anything like that. But I realized very clearly in that moment that our disconnection you know, the, the, the disconnection that I was feeling sexually with her was because porn was occupying space and territory in my existence. And that yeah. whenever, whenever I felt that pull to initiate something sexually with her that was uncomfortable or, or, you know, even exciting or exhilarating for me, I would, t- I would tend to back off from that and just go and watch porn because it was easier to do that. It was, you know, risk-free in some way. So that, that was sort of the beginning. And then there was just this, you know, a few years, honestly, of trying to stop watching porn and communicating with men in my life eventually about what was going on and the role that it was playing and what it was doing. And then really realizing, um, over time that it was something that I was trying to avoid. And then it just became a practice. You know, I used, I used porn as a sort of a backdoor entrance into regulating my nervous system. And so every single time that I would feel the urge was the moment that I would go sit down and I would do breath work or I'd go have a cold yeah. shower or I'd go and work out or I'd go and do whatever. And, you know, it did, it took some time. Like it really took some time for me to kick it because it, for me, it was it was a problem. It was a really big problem. And in my yeah. early twenties, 
you know, it was like five, six days a week and sometimes two, three hours at a time. Like it was bad. Yeah. You talk about in the book too, Gary Wilson's work, Your Brain on Porn. And I love that because in the beginning of my journey, and by the way, this is a huge energy stealer for people's ability to let go of old weight, which is like a focus right now in the world. Um, and that goes also to where it steals energy from work, from purpose. I, I can distinctly connect, Connor, that for me, it wasn't until I truly let go of it to a place where it didn't hold the charge anymore, or it didn't make me have the same neural pathways of reward where I know if I do that, I don't have to deal with my stuff. It was only at that place when my revenue tripled. And there's a clear connection, man, between money and porn, energy and porn, weight loss and porn. And, and porn is just an, an archetype of a place, like you said, a back door to regulate oneself. So now where you are as a father and, and how do you feel like you might educate code about this? You know, how, how would that play out when, when the time is right? Obviously, you're not going to talk to him about it now, but but down the road, like, where do you think that conversation might lead you and him? I mean, I th I think it's in in some ways, it's just trans transparency, you know, in in terms of how I battled it, you know, and my my struggle with it and talking with him openly about creating healthy intimacy and sexual connection. Because th those are, I mean, I don't know about you, but I definitely didn't get any talks as a child about how to create healthy intimacy no. or have a healthy sex life with a woman like <laughs> I came home I came home when I was like 13 and there was playboys I would go to my dad's a couple times a month and there was like playboys on the table and that was the only we didn't even talk about it that was my only education so, I got you know, I, I remember getting an anatomy of sex book that was my parents birds and the bees talk they gave me an anatomy of sex book they just handed it to you they literally just like dropped it off to me in my room <laughs> one day and then just like left and didn't say anything I mean it's funny then, but it's sad it's it's sad it's funny yeah. right but you know and I think <clears throat> even even when they busted me with porn not not busted me watching porn but they you know, it was in the early days. I mean, I was I was young enough that when we got the internet, it was like dial-up internet, you know. And so the photos would sort of load line by line. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that. But yes, I didn't know how to scrub browser history as a child. Right, I was like 13, 14 years old, and so they found the browser history. And my stepdad, their conversation with me was to literally print off the fucking browser history and sit me down and hand me the pages of the browser history of the porn that I've just been watching. And I was like, well, <laughs> I don't think that this is going to stop me because you haven't given me any conversation about what I should be doing instead. You had you that know? awareness then, or you have that awareness now? I, I had that awareness then. I was like, why? Well, you're telling me to stop, but you're not telling me how to stop. Yeah. You're not telling me why I should stop. You're not telling me why this is wrong. And you're not telling me what the alternative is. You know, that there's actually something else that I could be engaged with or looking towards. And so I think that's the conversation that I'll, because I've thought about this a lot, because I've talked very openly about porn. Yeah. And so at some point in my son's life, he'll probably be able to go and hear me talk about my journey with it, you know, because shit just doesn't get it deleted off the internet. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that's the conversation I'll have with him is like, look, this is what it is. It's entertainment and it's, it can be, as addictive as any other substance and it's easier than actually going out and acquiring sexual intimacy and sexual interaction yeah. there's less risk but that doesn't make it right and mm -hmm. it doesn't make it the thing that is going to satiate you you know i talk about porn in the book as being the supranormal experience right supranormal being above normal 
And so it conditions us neurologically and physically to expect a supranormal experience, an above normal experience, right? So you were talking about weight in the body before. A supranormal experience is like what we just you know went through with the holidays of you know, eating more food than you probably eat. That's generally yeah. what happens over the holidays, right? You have yeah. turkey and ham and whatever. That's a supernormal experience. And if you do that once in a while, no problem. Your body can adapt and handle that. But if you're doing that for every meal, then your body can't actually cope with the amount of input that it's getting. And it starts to create deficiencies in different ways within your body. So mm -hmm. porn is a supernormal experience that over time, you need more of it hands down, right? The research shows this. You need more of it in order to get aroused. And you generally will need more uh, fringe-oriented content in order to be aroused. And so just imagine what that's doing to your intimacy and your sex life, right? Mm -hmm. You want to connect with your partner. You want to engage in sex. But there's this idea and vision of what it needs to look like and how long it needs to last and what positions you do and what fetishes or fantasies you play out. And so all of a sudden, going and, and, and initiating intimacy is crowded with this tremendous amount of expectation of the highlight reels of what you've been watching recently. Sure. Right. So it doesn't leave room for you, your body, your your natural sexual arousal, the other person, their desire, their fantasy. It's just it has to look this way, or I'm not performing properly. Yeah. So for a lot of men, it 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 actually in the long term, or in in a lot of in too much use, will cause them to experience you know erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation and all this kind of stuff. It definitely did for me. I mean, a hundred percent. And actually I've had so I can't countless number of women specifically message me on Instagram and say, my husband's struggling with this. My husband's struggling with this. Where's the resources? What do I do? How do I? And I'm like, well, it's not the, the solution is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual self-knowledge issue. It's not what tactical thing do I do to quote, heal my addiction. It's, it's whatever, whatever people think it is. And I'm curious how you feel about this. Whatever people think it is, it's something that you wouldn't even know. It's unconscious incompetence. Like you, if the person could heal it, even if they didn't know what, what the solution was, they would at least have some path to go to. But if someone's with us right now, like a man is here with us or a woman who supports a man or just a human being that's struggling with this, know that it, it is definitely a, a, a spot in you that you don't even know you don't know. It's unconscious incompetence. So when it comes to people actually beginning this healing path of this, what is the first step? I mean, it's a staircase, man. You said it took multiple years. What is the first step for people? And by the way, the same way they heal this is the same way that they're going to heal almost anything else. Is there a first step? Is it just a self-awareness practice? Like you said, laying on the ground and breathing, like maybe it's different for everyone, but I'm curious. There's, there's, there's a few, I mean, the, the first line of the book, I say a man's work begins in pain. A man's work begins in pain and it begins in how you relate to your own pain physically and mentally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, et cetera. And so, you know, Jung talked about how the first step in the therapeutic process, and if you study any real religious process or spiritual process or any um, psychological or therapeutic modality, they all begin with relatively the same thing, which is admission or confession. Admission or confession. It's the unfortunate bridge that we have to cross or fortunate bridge that we have to cross in order for any 
type of transmutation or transformation or change to occur. It just is. And so you have to be willing to admit that there's something going on within you that you feel overpowered by, overwhelmed by, that you don't know how to deal with. You have to be willing to admit that at first to yourself and then maybe to somebody around you, mm. right? To say like, listen, I have tried to quit porn for months now and I don't know what to do. And there's a lot of forums out there where you can get that support. So yeah. that's <clears throat> that's the first part. And then the second part is what I was talking about before, which is you're likely in pain in some way, shape or form and and either aren't aware of it or don't want to feel it, right? So you are either feeling anxious or lonely or frustrated or you know, bored or whatever it is, and you don't know how to be with the charge of that energy in your body and in your mind and the thoughts that come along with it. And so you're using porn as a means to numb out and escape it. And so the only pathway after that admission is to turn towards rather than running away, right? To turn towards that pain, that internal experience in charge of anxiety or depression or whatever it is, and begin to feel into it, begin to befriend it and start to understand it and welcome it in versus I don't want to feel this way. And so I got to have something to scrub it out. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's kind of what we, that's kind of what we've been taught within masculine culture, right? It's like stuff it down or suck it up, you know, rub one out for good measure, pour a body bottle of whiskey over the top and, and then maybe rinse and repeat. Right. And so we have to move away from that methodology because it doesn't work for us and actually move into what am I actually experiencing right now? So I I lay it out in the book, you know, in terms of there's a couple very simple, clear steps that you can take, but it does start with set a timer, set a, a, a practice or a ritual for yourself. And this, maybe I'll just talk about this one thing. Every man has a porn ritual. And I write about this in the book. Every man has a porn ritual that I've ever worked with. They have a porn ritual. They watch porn at around the same time. They watch generally the, the same amounts of the, the same type of porn. They watch in the same place. They have, it's very ritualized. And so it becomes this sort of like pseudo sacred experience for a man. He watches it in the morning in bed or standing up or whatever it is. And so get clear on what your porn ritual is and then get clear on what you're experiencing before that porn ritual, right? What are you actually feeling before that? And can you recontextualize the ritual? Can you actually turn the porn ritual into something more generative, right? A breathing a breathing exercise, a meditation, mm-hmm. a yoga, a tai chi, a working out, you know, uh, a creative endeavor. Can you press that energy into something meaningful that you're not going to feel shame about afterwards or mm-hmm. be disappointed that you, you know, you watched it or whatever, whatever it is that you feel afterwards. It's so good because I, I think about what even led me to breath work. And, you know, we have over 1,100 students in the breathe program now. And, and the majority of them that get success that actually finish the program, they find pockets of energy inside of themselves that were actually feeding the beast sideways. And it's so easy for us to like quote science and say, oh, okay, well, energy can't be created or destroyed, just, you know, moved and transmuted. And I think we all get that on some head level, on like an intellectual level, but to actually know that, to feel how the energy is going sideways. And and I'll speak as a man, right? And that's really what this men's work book is all about. The energy that gets stuck in the pockets of self and how that energy makes us do things as men that we essentially in our heart don't want to do but yet they still play out. Is there anything else that is a collective shadow 
you know, obviously porn is a big one, but is there anything else for men that's a collective shadow that creates those pockets of energy that starts to dictate us to places that we don't want to fucking go? The feminine. <laughs> All right, we'll just stop the podcast right there. <laughs> the, fe- the feminine. The feminine can cause us to do all kinds of crazy shit all the time, right? And if you don't like the word feminine or masculine, you can use use the word yin or yang or go or flow. No, I, it's, I get it. Know. It's energy. Yeah. I understand. I think we get but, it. Yeah. You know, in, 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 in the book, I talk about our relationship to women. I talk about our relationship to the, to the anima, you know, in Jungian, in the Jungian framework, the masculine, and the feminine were the animus and the anima and the anima within us as men is our unconscious. And so I think one of the big things that that sits in our shadow as men is our relationship to women, but to the feminine in specific, the the embodiment of caring and compassion. You know, just as an example, I see a lot of men who have a really negative internal dialogue, really abusive internal dialogue. The way that they speak to themselves is incredibly harsh, condescending, judgmental, yeah. really violent sometimes. Why is that? Well, it's largely because they're disconnected from their own feminine nature of self-compassion. They're disconnected from their own capacity to see the value in their own feminine ability to be self-nurturing. And so we as men run around because we're very externally focused creatures. We like to look out into the world and figure problems out. And so we do the same thing with women and the feminine. We look out at women and we say, I got to figure her out. And then we scramble and run around and we get caught in all types of traps, right? And then the women that we're with don't really feel known or understood or safe because we're so busy in some ways objectifying them as an object that we need to solve that we don't see who they actually are. And so when when we realize that our ability to interact with women and our ability to interact with the feminine in the world is directly correlated to our ability to be with our feminine nature internally, our feminine qualities internally, there's a hope for us to be in right relationship with women and the feminine externally, right? To actually have a more peaceful, grounded, loving, connected with the women that we are surrounded by, whether that's at work or at home, in our marriage, in our relationship, in our family system, that is that's the process that we need to do to stop running around trying to figure women out externally or trying to what is the feminine need there's a, i see a lot of this content online of like the feminine needs this and the feminine needs that and it's like you're never going to know what the feminine is until you start to experience it in yourself and in your life rather than trying to get it outside of you or figure it out outside of you so you can go within and start to say how am i deficient within this quality, right? If you're somebody that's super harsh on yourself, and I see this a lot with nice guys who get in relationships with women who they become the like needy nice guy, right? I need you to validate me. Tell me I'm good enough. Tell me I'm good enough in bed. Tell me I'm lovable enough. I'm handsome enough. I'm funny enough. I'm whatever it is. He's doing that because he feels deficient in self-nurturing, in the ability to praise himself, to recognize himself, and to set some boundaries with the harsh inner dialogue that's self-deprecating, that's tearing him apart internally. And if he could infuse some of his inner dialogue with care and compassion and to speak speak to himself, not only with respect, but with sometimes love 
and appreciation and admiration and to have some compassion for himself, he wouldn't so desperately need to go go and get it out in the world. He'd actually be able to source that within himself. And by doing so, he would become more sovereign. And by doing so, he will trust himself more and be more confident. And by doing so, women will feel more attracted to him. Right. So we have to come into right relationship with the feminine orientation within ourselves as men rather than trying to chase it externally. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we see right now within our modern culture for many reasons, many, many, many reasons. I feel like you just walked into a field of confusion and you just gently placed a 50 pound gold block of awareness. Like I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about the, the anime and the animus and the masculine feminine and men. We know that if we are in touch with the feminine and ourselves, that there's so much gold there. There's so many good things there. The way that you just said that was probably the best I've ever heard. So I really appreciate that because I know it comes from the work that you do with men. I know it comes from the relationship you're in. And I want to bring up this last point before we round out. One of the things I heard you say, maybe it was like a, a year or two ago, it might have even been during the pandemic. You wrote a letter to Code. You wrote a letter to your son and you said, you're being welcomed into a house with stubborn hearts. Why did you say that? And can you see that maybe in that there was a seed of truth for him that a part of you didn't even know why you were doing it? Or did you know exactly why you were doing that? You know, I think, um, I, I, I don't know if I know exactly or fully why, why I was doing that, but in, in many ways, like my wife and I have joked about how we're both big personalities and stubborn, right? In, in my, uh, in my vows on our, on our wedding night, I wrote this sort of like poem or spoken word piece to her called two stubborn hearts. And it was about our dynamic and that we are stubborn enough to love one another through some of the hardest elements of of our life some of the hardest patches of our life that we've been going through and to to remain in each other's corner through those things and so the stubbornness that we often vilify in our culture and see it as this negative thing oh it's so stubborn oh they're so immovable oh they're so that it's sort of a i don't know what the word is that i'm looking for but but almost just like a, a tipping the hat to the reality that we have flawed parts, you know, and sometimes we are going to be stubborn, but that doesn't always have to be a bad thing. That sometimes our stubbornness is the exact thing, the exact thing that needs to be loved. Yeah. And that if my son is stubborn and which he probably will be, he's about to enter into the twos, you know, the twos and the threes. Uh, if yeah. my son is stubborn, I'll love him through that. And if he's, if he's someone that becomes, irritable sometimes and immovable. I'll love him through that. And so in my family, this stubbornness is something that it's, it's a tip of the hat of like, sometimes I'm not going to like that part about you, but sometimes it's the exact thing that I need. And it's sometimes the exact thing that you need. And sometimes it's the exact thing that I, I get to love. I get to love. I don't need to love. I get to love mm -hmm. because it's a reminder that in our world, we think that love should come in uh, in a sort of easy package and that love and relationships should be just the simplest thing in the world and it's as false 
you know, sometimes we have to be stubborn. We have to love stubbornly. We have to show up for ourselves stubbornly, you know, and I've had to love myself in a stubborn way because sometimes I didn't want to do that, you know, that my inner dialogue was harsh and mean and abusive. And so I've had to be stubborn in order to get through the shit that <laughs> the first part of my life dished yeah. on to me, you know, and that's just the truth. And that's a very enduring, loving quality that can also sometimes make me an asshole. Sure. Stubborn stubborn gets a bad rap, but at its core, you know, the etymology I'm sure is traced to persistence. So, so if, if I'm stubborn, it, it's like a hammer. You can build a house with a hammer. You can kill someone with a hammer. Being stubborn inherently is not, is not bad. Um, I love that. And, and it brought up something for me where I was like, you know, even with Nova, he's 17 months now. And, and when I play with him and when he has his tantrums, he'll like spray back and he'll cry for five minutes. And one of the biggest challenges for me has been just to actually be there for him and not allow his anger, his f- intensity to make me feel like I need to go grab and hold him. I need to make things better because I'm not okay with him being not okay. And that is a huge mirror, man. So for all the dads out there, gravitas like we we feel you we understand you and and as we say goodbye man think about this and and really ponder this for us at the core of everything you're discussing in the book and by the way the link is right below the video here so y'all need to pick this up if you're if you're a man who's like hey i i i don't exactly know what this year is going to bring me and i don't have a framework of how i'm going to regulate myself to handle what life brings me this is the path. Also, if you're a woman in a relationship or if you just know a man in your life that that really needs a guy to frame, that's what I really feel from your book. So, so kudos to you for writing this book at a time where it is most needed and it applies to everything that people right now in January are so focused on, man. So thank you for that. And, and the big question is at the center of all this, you know, knowing ourselves, nourishing ourselves, putting all the pieces together that, that I call the wellness Pentagon that I teach to my students, the, the mental, physical, emotional, financial, spiritual nourishing that we need. In the center of that, there is you, there is me, and there is this capacity, this switching capacity to lean into our feminine, lean into our masculine, lean into our shadow, practice joy. What is that switching capacity for you? What is that switching power for you? And if you had to describe it in whatever way you want to describe it, where does it emanate from? That ability to go from dark to light, masculine to feminine, hard to easy. I find that to be a very big challenge for myself at times, the switching capacity. You know, one of the things that I've learned over the years is is the power of the breath and its capacity, its ability to act as a kind of, um, not switch, but modulator and dial between the parts of our nervous system that allow us to either be grounded, calm, and relaxed, which is the parasympathetic dominant, or the sympathetic, which is the go, cortisol, stress, attack, get it. Yeah. And and so our, I, I fundamentally believe, and I've seen this in my own life, that when I can connect to my breath, then I can connect to the energy in my body, more specifically the energy that's coursing through my nervous system. And so I think our ability to switch between that light and dark and oscillate between, you know, not having any space within us to have a conversation or engage in some conflict, all of that is first through the breath and then through the nervous system, right? Through the body. And for many of us, specifically as men, we live in our heads. We've been, we've been 
sold a lie that the rational mind should be over-indexed to the nth degree. And we've been told that ra- like your, your rational mind can solve any problem. Well, your, your rational mind can't solve emotional problems. It just can't. And so we have to be willing to get into the data and the information that lives within the territory of our body. And so that's very hard to translate into a book. You know, I put a lot of frameworks and and questions and and exercises that men can do, but I think that that's part of the pathway is for us to actually return to a way of being in the body where we can feel the world around us and we can witness uh, everything that starts to emerge. But all that, maybe now I'm answering the question, actually, all that requires awareness, right? We have to have awareness at the base of it, awareness of the breath, awareness of the body, awareness of what's happening internally. So <laughs> that's what I would say it takes. It's a great answer. And um, people can get the book. It's mantalks.com forward slash men's dash work dash book. Also on Amazon. I mean, basically everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, Bookshop.org, Sounds True, which by the way, Sounds True did an amazing job with Ken Wilber's work. I don't know if you've listened to some of the other work that Sounds True has done. So is there going to be an audio? Are you going to do an audio version? You know what? I was fortunate enough to get, they they brought me out to Colorado to their head office and they're where their recording studio is, where like Ken Wilber, Eckhart Tolle, Wim Hof have all recorded their audiobooks, And I got to it was like one of the highlights of 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 this journey was I got to record my audiobook in the space where like legends have sat for the last three or four decades and and actually be one of the last people because I think they're they're selling the the space and, and shutting down oh. that, that head office. And so Wow, was, that, that is felt, so that just gave me yeah. a chill. I'm like, what a special moment. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty it was pretty rad. So there'll definitely be yeah. an audiobook coming out. And it, and there's there's a shortened link now. You just go to mantox.com forward slash book. Uh, easier. I made, it, I made it even easier. Much easier. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So the Man Talks podcast, which I've been a guest on, we we went deep into breath. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes. This podcast, um, it's an expression of you as a man, but now it's an expression of you as a father. Did anything really shift inside of you? And how does the podcast emanate from you now compared to when you started? I'm sure it's much different. Like I know it is for me the death and rebirth. So man talks podcast, what does it mean to you now versus what did it mean to you before? Man, I've I've been, I've been recording the podcast for like seven years now. And I started it with somebody who I had never listened to a podcast before in my life. And somebody that was working with me and they're like, you have to start a a podcast. You have to have a show. And I was like, "Mm, (laughs) I don't even know what a podcast is, but now I love it. It's become, it's become a place for me to expand my own curiosity and and you know this year i'm going to be having conversations with some very interesting people to go deep into some of the current topics of the world you know what are men and women facing in dating what's yeah. happening you know between men and women in terms of relationships and marriages and uh earning and expectations and selection preferences and and to go deep on some of those subjects and so uh it, it's evolved into this into this place of it's something that I love as a tool and a resource for learning. And I found that the more that I can dig into subject matter that I deeply love, the more that people get out of it. Of and so I really want it to be a, a, not to sound cliche, but like a legacy piece, you know, so that later on in life, like I would love to podcast for the rest of my life, you know, and, and to have that be something that eventually my son 
uh, can can join me on. And so it's turned into something much, much bigger than I expected. Oh, that's so cool. We had Nova in the studio and and out of nowhere, I don't know if he's seen me do it. He grabs the Shure mic at the de- at the table back here and he starts talking into it. And we didn't tell him to do that. So I'm like, the the way that his brain is so moldable and so plastic, I absolutely love it, man. I want to say goodbye. Um, there's a quote that you posted about a year ago, and I think it's a beautiful way for us to reflect. Maybe you're watching or listening to this podcast for the second or third time. There's so many nuggets in here. So Connor, let me say this as we say goodbye. Before I do, just give people the URL for the book and also for the pod and just anything else where you want them to to connect with you. Yeah, everything you can, everything you want to find is just at mantalks.com. The podcast is there. If you want the book directly, it's mantalks.com forward slash the book. That's probably the easiest way to find it. And then all the links are in my bio on Instagram at mantalks. Uh, you can sort of follow along the journey. All right. All right. It's right down below the video or it's right down wherever you're listening. So as we say goodbye, this is from Bruce Lee. Instead of buying your children all the things you never had, you should teach them the things that you were never taught. Material wears out, but knowledge stays. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for being with us. This podcast is brought to you by Organifi, specifically what I love the most, Organifi Red Juice. This is the superfood that is made from 100% organic ingredients, and some of the ingredients are going to rock your world on a cellular, spiritual, and mental level. There's the organic prebiotic powder, the rhodiola, the Siberian ginseng, the red beetroot, cordyceps, reishi, and so many other things that are not only antioxidants, but they give you energy from the inside of the cells through diffusion out. You know and I know that you are what you eat, but you also are what you ate ate. These plants, these adaptogens, these superfoods, all were grown in an organic environment. Now, this is a really big deal. A lot of the greens powders, a lot of the other companies out there, they're not organic. We've had people approach us. I've said no. I've always stuck with Organifi, and I think you should too. Head over to joshtrent.com forward slash Organifi. Pick up a multi-pack of the red, the green, the gold, but no matter what, get the red. It is my absolute favorite. It's caffeine-free. It's better than a pre-workout. I know a lot of people do a ton of caffeine before pre-workouts. Try the red juice. If you're a weightlifter, if you love athletics, if you want to sweat and get really, really good energy, check out joshtrent.com forward slash Organifi. Use the code wellnessforce. You get 20% off, 20% off with the code wellnessforce at the Organifi's website. Quick link, joshtrend.com forward slash Organifi. Pick up the red juice, use the code wellnessforce, get 20% off. Thanks for being with us today on the Wellness and Wisdom Podcast. I so appreciate your time. Time is our most valuable resource, and I am truly honored with my hand on my heart that you would spend it here with us. If you love this episode, please share it with a friend. Share it with someone who you think would really benefit and their life would become richer and better and more vital from the intelligence that you received. Now that you've become more intelligent from this episode, take your journey to the next level. Head over to joshtrent.com forward slash M21. This is where you're going to get a free wellness guide that'll give you a starting place, a guide, a framework for you to actually move forward from where you are to where you want to be. 
whether it's mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, even financial, these are six science-backed practices that I've pulled from 500 plus episodes that I'm going to distill down into just the juice, just the nuggets. Do this, joshtrent.com forward slash M21. There's free breathwork practices inside of this wellness guide. It's 21 minutes every single morning to create a new path for you, which if you take different actions, you will get a different result. joshtrent.com forward slash M21 to get your free wellness guide and kickstart, reset your path towards wellness and wholeness. Also in the guide, make sure that you check out our breathwork program, Breathe, Breath, and Wellness. I created it from traveling the world over four years and interviewing and working with some of the biggest and most powerful names in the entire breathwork industry. It's breathwork.io and the code is podcast25. That's 25% off at breathwork.io. This is where I will personally guide you over three weeks to have all the fundamentals of you to know how to clear your stress with your breath in less than three weeks. We've had students from across the world. You can check out some of the testimonials at breathwork.io where people use their breath to change their life and to change the way that their mind thinks and what they believe about themselves and the world, what's possible, what love is possible, and what new things are possible in their life for the road ahead. Breathwork.io, use the code podcast25, and I cannot wait to see you in the program.